0: In a grand ceremony in Old St. Peter's Basilica, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne, King of the Franks, as the Emperor of the Romans. For the first time in more than 300 years, the West had both a reigning overlord and a visible demonstration of its cohesive cultural vision. In 476, Odeser, a German tribal commander who had risen through the ranks of the Roman imperial legions, led a revolt of barbarian soldiers and succeeded in deposing the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus. Historians make much of that date, marking the end of the Roman Empire. At the time, though, no one actually imagined that the empire had ceased to exist. Odessa had the full support of both the Roman army and the Roman senate. And of course, it would not have been the first time a military coup had removed one emperor, replacing him with a powerful and ambitious general. Historian Christopher Dawson has identified at least 17 such military coups throughout the long history of the Roman Empire from the assassination of Julius Caesar to the deposition of Romulus. Though the empire had long been governed by two competing emperors, one in the east in Constantinople and one in the west at Rome, it was nevertheless still regarded as a unified, united civilization and a single imperial dominion. Thus, when Odeser forced Romulus into exile in Ravenna, the Roman army, the Roman senate, and even Odeser immediately acknowledged the sovereign authority of the eastern emperor Zeno, It wasn't so much that Rome fell as it was that the administrative authority of the old empire began to fragment and decentralize. The centralized power structures in Rome had become woefully corrupt and decrepit, but the idea of a united Roman civilization was as cherished as ever. Though the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, Franks, Visigoths, Lombards, and Burgundians all set up new kingdoms in the western provinces, they never questioned the abiding significance of the confederated empire. Kingship merely denoted leadership of a clan or a community. Such leaders continued to look to the emperor to grant them titles to both land and authority. They used the emperor's image on their coins. They adopted Roman law throughout their provinces. And they paid fealty to their acknowledged lord in goods, services, and arms. Thus, when Charlemagne was crowned emperor by the pope, restoring at long last the western imperial throne— There was less a sense of resurrecting a long-lost legacy than of revitalizing a long-cherished ideal. Christendom was heralded, cherished, and venerated as a kind of confederated republic with a theoretical unity which could preserve the established hierarchy, maintain the common standard of justice, enforce the bonds of accountability, and prompt the joining of arms together in times of war or crusade. As late as the end of the 16th century, the popular chronicler Jacob Meyer could say, the Christian Republic is a single kingdom— a house undivided. The wars which are waged between its subjects are a matter for great shame. They should not in truth be called wars, but rather base sedition. Thus, according to Christopher Dawson, when Pope Leo invested the title and the authority of the Western Empire upon Charlemagne, much of the Christian West was able to recognize the occasion as a long-awaited renewal of an ancient and cherished ideal. Charlemagne's sons, Pippin and Louis, were given portions of the empire to rule as co-regents. Thus, at the emperor's death in 814, the unity of the only recently revived empire was threatened with sudden dissolution, but... The various tribal overlords agreed upon an electoral system and the title of emperor was maintained, continuing in the Carolinian family until 899. After a brief period when imperial authority was contested by various Lombard and Norman rulers in northern Italy, the crown was restored to the Carolinian line in 962, under the Saxon king Otto I. And then, for most of the next millennia, the Holy Roman Empire, as it came to be called, was an uninterrupted, cohesive force in Western Christendom. Some historians marked the end of the empire during the 19th century with Napoleon's conquests at the beginning of the century and the Franco-Prussian War at the end of the century. Still others trace its continuing presence to the end of the First World War with the toppling of Habsburg rule in 1918. But whenever the imperium actually ended, it is clear that for centuries it remained the most powerful cultural and political force in Central and Western Europe, noble electors would call upon the dynasty of the Carolinians and their successors, the Hohenstaufens and the Habsburgs, to somehow hold together their decentralized, crazy quilt of kingdoms, principalities, duchies, counties, prince-bishoprics, and those free city-states, and for the most part, they did— The actual power of the emperors would wax and wane through the erratic epics of medievalism and the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and modernity. For the lands of Eastern Europe, however, the looming presence of a powerful Holy Roman Empire encroaching upon it from the west, matched by the looming presence of a powerful Russian Empire encroaching upon it from the east— meant that its history was largely defined by what Polish historian Heinrich Sienkiewicz has called the great Janus-like resolve of the Poles and the Czechs, of the Bulgarians and the Lithuanians, of all the peoples caught between the vice grip of two ravenous imperial appetites. According to an ancient Roman myth, Janus was a two faced god of both beginnings and endings, of passages and transitions, of time past and future. He was the god of duality, looking in both directions at once. The lands of Eastern Europe, in having to constantly guard against the ambitions on both their Eastern and Western fronts, all too often was forced into a Janus-like resolve, so much so that the trope of facing both directions at once became quite common in its literature, art, and heraldry. The double-headed eagle, for instance, is one of the most recognized images in the region— appearing on both the banners and crests as well as the flags of the Habsburgs and the Romanovs, the Poles, the Slavs in Bulgaria and Ukraine. There is little wonder. After all, Eastern Europe's history has been a perpetual tug-of-war between the culture of the Danube and the culture of the Volga, between the aspirations of popes and patriarchs, of emperors and czars, of the Catholic and the Orthodox, of East and West. Its story has truly been a Janus-like experience, demanding a Janus-like resolve, an important reminder to us In this day, as we undertake the great task of both resistance and reformation, I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and uh, for more information, uh, for resources, go to georgegrant.net.